Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Hi, and thanks for checking out Basic Folk. We are a podcast that hosts honest conversations with folk musicians. It's me, Cindy House. A couple things before we get into The John Doe. Basic Folk is a listener-supported podcast. If you'd like to help out, there's a couple different ways that you can stay in touch with us. You can join our mailing list, which is the best way to keep in touch. You can join at our website, basicfolk.com. You can follow us on social media at basicfolkpod. Or if you'd like to make a contribution, you can do that at basicfolk.com slash donate. If you give at least $60 a year or $5 a month, you'll have access to our bonus content called Backstage. All right. And thank you so much for supporting Basic Folk. You can tell a friend. You can uh, review us on iTunes. Uh, you know, or you can just keep on listening. It's all good. John Doe's career has gone from poetry to punk to country to acting to punk to folk and back again several times. Frontman for the extremely influential L.A. punk band X, John was there at the dawn of West Coast punk and has written about it twice in his books Under the Big Black Sun and More Fun in the New World. He actually sourced out most of the book's chapters and had his friends and other people who were there give accounts, which makes them both pretty well-rounded. John grew up mostly in Baltimore under the influence of John Waters and Divine. He worked odd jobs and ran a poetry group there, and he'd moved to Los Angeles in the mid-70s and met his future ex-bandmates Exine, Billy Zoom, and DJ Bonebreak. John's been in countless films and TV shows since 1987. He kind of stumbled into acting by getting an agent after he was in the indie film Border Radio. You may have seen him in films like Roadhouse or Boogie Nights or series like Carnival. He's lived in Austin, Texas since 2017 and loves to tell people it's terrible so no one else moves there. John's latest album, Fables in a Foreign Land, takes place in the 1890s and surrounds a young man who's found himself alone in a cruel, hard world. The album's sound was developed through weekly jam sessions in his bassist's backyard. This time around, John's played up his interest in folk and roots music, all the while keeping that punk sensibility. John says these songs take place alone, wandering, searching, and hungry, accompanied by horses, not machines. And speaking of horses, John's got a couple of horses, and it seems they've kept him grounded, especially during the pandemic. So, yeah, I asked the guy about his horses. That, and we also talk about controlling the ego, listening to intuition, taking care of your physical health, and, of course, his cameo in The Bodyguard. Yes, the Whitney Houston movie. Thanks to John Doe for this great conversation. We'll take a listen to a song from his latest album. This is Never Coming Back, and then we'll get to our conversation with the John Doe on Basic Folk. So many people rushing by Everybody dressed in black Whispers up in the sky Never coming back You killed my mind Burn down their side I'm going far away And never coming back I'm never coming back 
John, thank you so much for talking to me today. It's so awesome to have you on the podcast. Thanks, Cindy. So before we start talking about the new album, um, I wanted to talk to you about mornings, like a morning routine. So you were on, and I've heard you talk about mornings a little bit in sort of like a jokey way. You were on a podcast called The Musician's Guide to Everything, and you were talking about like being grateful for waking up in the morning and being like, fuck, yeah, I woke up. <laughs> um, and I think... Hearing about morning routines is, you know, pretty interesting to hear, like, how people spend their, you know, first hours awake. So what are your mornings like and how have they changed over the years? <laughs> oh, uh, how how far back do you want to go? Because they were very busy when I had uh, was raising young children. Um, mm. And then and then I uh, was able to train myself to go back to sleep and not wake up at five or six in the morning which is also a good thing. My routine is to, uh, I stretch uh, while I'm still in bed and it has, uh, knock on wood, has helped me from, from any lower back pain, which uh, getting bucked off horses and um, lifting SVT amplifiers can be, um, can be tender, <laughs> can be tender. So uh, I stretch and, um, and then I get up and make coffee and um, usually have some granola, uh, fruit, and uh, buckwheat, and um, and then if I'm working on writing, then I I write. Mornings are nice. the best uh, the best times for writing I've found. And uh, or why do you think that is? Oh, because there's just less clutter in your head, mm -hmm. and um, seems to be op more open to free association. Um, mm -hmm. So you so you make little different connections from one word to the next, or, or even with, um, you know, music, what chord, what melody, but that's, that's a little bit more all during the day melodies. Mm -hmm. They just come when they come and then you have to try to remember them or record them on a voicemail like this. Nice. The new album Fables in a Foreign Land, we'll say that it's out now because this interview is coming out by the time it's released, mm -hmm. um, played by the John Doe Folk Trio. Kevin Smith on bass, Conrad Chakroon mm -hmm. on drums. Good job. Um, thank you. I watched the Backyard concert you did in March, and I was oh, cool. Googling how you pronounce Conrad's name, and like three <laughs> seconds later, you said it. <laughs> Serendipitous. Yes. Uh, the album sound was developed through these like weekly jam sessions in Kevin's backyard, and I imagine like that might have been some of the first time playing with others because of the pandemic. Um, but anyhow, like what were those jams like and how do they impact your mentality of terms of being able to play with others again? Well, it was uh, April or maybe May of 2020. So it was whenever everything was locked down and uh, Kevin plays with Willie Nelson. So I knew he wasn't touring. We weren't touring. X wasn't or I wasn't doing any solo stuff. So I called him up just so we could reassure ourselves that we, yes, that in fact we were musicians and we did play music. <laughs> and we just met on his patio. And then a, maybe a couple months later, we um, got in touch with Conrad. We had played a, a handful of shows before that in, um, I guess, probably 2019. And so uh, I had a few new songs and we just played some other old Doe songs and some other X songs and country songs and just whatever we felt like. And probably for the first, well, for the first two or three times that Kevin and I did it, we realized this is, this was a first for us just to play, not for, you know, to learn songs for a gig or to go on tour or to, it was just to, just to play for the hell of it. Hmm. And that for, you know, maybe 30 plus years. <laughs> That's yeah. that's sort of sad. That's sort of sad in a way, but uh, it was true, and, and so it was. That was enjoyable, and uh, you know, got to you, you just the more you play with someone, the more musical vocabulary you develop, and all like that. So, yeah, we just did it for the hell of it. And Conrad and Kevin have played before, uh, just because mm -hmm. they're Austin musicians, and it, they're it's kind of one big family, and no. Um, Nobody gets mad if somebody else gets the gig because they'll get the gig the next time. I actually have, you know, Conrad and Kevin, since they made the record, they're the A-team when I go on tour. But then there's like a second A-team, which is 
uh, Lisa Pankratz and Brad Fordham, who tour with um, Dave Alvin and Jimmy Dale Gilmore and, you know, play all over Austin. So I'm, I'm very fortunate that way. But um, hmm. yeah, we didn't have any need for a PA or, you know, because we just sang and played into the air. He, Kevin plays upright bass and Conrad will play drums kind of muffled and we just worked on it. Uh, the story of this album takes place in the 1890s, um, and you say there's a lot of sleeping on the ground, a lot of being hungry, a lot of isolation, which could be related to the isolation felt like during the COVID lockdown. Mm-hmm. Um, it's And I heard you talk about how it's about a kid whose parents are killed and he has, he has to go off and find his own way. Um, can you tell me more about this kid when he first started coming to mind and, and how you relate to him? It wasn't so much me relating to to a single person because it also could be a, a a girl maybe posing as a man who's having all these adventures. But oh, I guess I I heard the word kid and I thought it was a, a guy, but it, it could well, also be I mean, a girl. I'm, yeah. yeah, I'm I'm usually writing. But, you know, most songwriters just write about themselves <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> as the lead character. But I think it first came to me uh, on tour seeing the uh, the Missouri River um, flooded. And it flooded tens of thousands of acres uh, between uh, Kansas City and and Omaha. And I dr- we drove that route, that route twice. And, I mean, the, all these fields were underwater like two or three feet underwater, not just, you know, mm. muddy. It was impossible to, to you know, and, and, I, and, and that wasn't on the news and that, it kind of blew my mind, but um, that was part of it. And, and also just not really loving how many things are just virtual and, and digital and wanting to, to write about something that was more elemental. And, and it, it wasn't intentional to like, I'm going to write about this stuff, except when it started reoccurring and then the pandemic kind of backed it up with the same sort of feelings um but mm. each each one i mean each song has a has a different kind of inspiration but it did require me to it requires you to to, to kind of be determined and and disciplined in that this is this is what it's going to be about this is the mm-hmm. time and place sort of that it's going to take that it's going to happen not all of the things happen to the person, the first person who's telling the story. Some of them he or she might have heard, um, you know, as they're traveling or might have seen as they're traveling. Um, Guilty Bystander was definitely a response to the murder of George Floyd. And uh, like Cowboy in the Hot Air Balloon, which is, which is one of the, you know, almost humorous songs, was just, it just came to me, you know, out of the blue. And uh, while X was on tour in probably 2018 or 2019, mm. and I just started seeing a trend and thought, okay, well, let's let's see if you can follow through. So part of it is the challenge, and it's a time period that's like, you know, pre-industrial, and and people had real struggle. I mean, not that you don't now. Everybody right. had everybody had more. Just you know, food, shelter, you know, that kind of thing. Right, and the smell was probably terrible. <laughs> yeah, depending. Back then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, depending, yeah. Um, you know, uh, l- reading about this album, listening to it, and, and sort of like checking up on you and what you've been up to, I make a lot of, I've made a lot of assumptions here. Um, and one of the things you've said about this album is that uh, these songs take place alone, wandering, searching, and hungry, accompanied by horses, not machines. Mm-hmm. Um, so my assumption was that you have two horses, and I'm wondering if uh, they sort of like had some kind of inspiration to the writing. Like you say, visiting your horses is what keeps you sane. It's your saving grace. So there's two questions in here. Can you tell me about your horses <laughs> and what they mean to you? and how they helped create this world on your new album. Like how much daydreaming have you done about this like dark place while spending some quality and tranquil time with the horses? Uh, sure. I, I got into horses through my friend Michael Blake who wrote uh, Dances with Wolves. And uh, Michael was a dear friend of mine and, and it was tough when he passed. Um, the record before this, The Westerner, was kind of dedicated to him. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that was late in life. I was probably in my mid thirties when I first started working with horses. So that's over 30 years now. And, um, you can daydream while you're with horses, but you still have to be very present. You know, you can, if you're doing it right, you shift to a slower and, and a, and a more, um, present plane of consciousness you know if you're doing it right and you're Mm. you're just i don't run around i don't i don't hardly even gallop you know on occasion um we just walk around the woods and so you can daydream but you better not get hit by a branch because because it'll (laughs) it'll hurt and and you don't want to do that so that's that's why it i feel like it it, it, i guess it um you know they say that horses are have very right side of their brain and they don't have a lot of connection between right and left side. That's why they don't have like long-term memory or, you know, that's why they can get scared at something that they weren't previously scared of or something like that. And so, but that right side of the brain from what I'm, from what I understand is like the right here, right now. It's not your logical thinking, you know, brain. So you have to be right here and, and, and everybody talks about being present. So yeah, you gotta be present because horses will step on you if you, if you're not. (laughs) And, yeah. and that hurts. That hurts as well. So it's, it's you know, and, and it, uh, you know, I don't have any illusions about, you know, what it would be like to ride across the, you know, state of Texas on a horse. That, that would be punishing, but mm. probably would put you in a, in a, in a, in a, a different place. So, yeah, that's, that's, I guess that's how the, uh, it contributed to making the record. And um, I did actually hear uh, a melody while I was on horseback one day, uh, the melody for um, Down South, which uh, mm. if you've been to Texas, there, there is an, a, uh, an incredible uh, clouds form in the middle of the day, just big, the whole sky is filled with these big white puffy clouds. And uh, it happens, it'll happen almost every day uh, during a certain time of year. And uh, that was where that came from. And, and then uh, I, the horse that I ride all the time is a mare. And, and mares are uh, smarter and they're a little more aware of their surroundings. And um, so I, I wrote that, that line in um, Traveling So Hard, uh, thanks to her. There's a, a line uh, or a verse, he fell off his horse as drunk as he could be. He fell off his horse, uh, nobody laughed but me. That mare didn't care one way or the other. She'd been traveling so hard. And it's like, if somebody falls, <laughs> From the perspective of a horse, if somebody falls off or gets off, it's like, thank goodness. I don't have to <laughs> carry this nitwit around, especially if they're drunk. So right. I like to say that she helped me write that song, although she's not going to ask for royalties or publishing. Do they have names? Yes, Red and Sugar. Sugar's the, yes. uh, the mayor, and, and uh, my, uh, she was given to my daughter when she was about four months old, so I've known Sugar all of her life. We've got a pretty good... Bond. And Red is an older horse, and he was gifted to me. And he's a gelding, and he just uh, follows along. I don't even have to have a rope on him. He just follows along because he wants to be part of the team. We ride oh, all nice. <laughs> ride all through the woods, and and it scares the shit out of people because because <laughs> I come, you know, I'll, I'll, they'll see me, and then suddenly there's another horse with no rider on, and it's like what what the <laughs> what's that? Yeah. So that's fun. Another uh, theme on this album is talking about the the isolation and the lack of modern stimulus that, you know, you were saying, I think people started rediscovering during the pandemic lockdown, sort of like realizing what's important and what you live for becomes paramount, like during, during those kind of like hard times in your life, like in lockdown. So mm-hmm. in thinking about that, like, what did you discover during lockdown, during quarantine? And like, what have you let go? Oh, I've, uh, I think, I, I hope, I hope that I've discovered, uh, I hope I've discovered some more empathy and, and I wish that more people did, uh, rather than, it seems like people are just angrier and, and that mystifies me because you, if, if you've had a hard time, you would assume that other people have had a hard time and you would want to be empathetic. So that's what I think I've gained. I, I, I realized that I might, I might actually uh, be able to retire. No, I mean, I wouldn't be able to, I don't have the money to, but I could like mentally <laughs> just be rather than having to be on tour. And, and now that there's things happening, 
it's a little overwhelming to, to have to go back to that kind of um, planning. There's so much planning. Mm. <laughs> Fuck all this planning. <laughs> uh, but um, I, I think I, I think I've let go of um, the need to to be on stage as much. I've let go of some of that. I've also let tried to let go uh, or understood better um, how destructive your ego can be. Um, there, there really is not much reason to defend yourself, especially with your, you know, loved ones and partners and things like that. When somebody calls you out on something. Yeah. Is that or, what you mean? When, yeah. Yeah. Whenever you, you start defending yourself, you're probably missing a, a, a opportunity to learn something or, or to change something or, to, or to, yeah. <laughs> I, right now, when, when I, if ever I have the, the feeling that I should defend myself, I just stop. <laughs> I just stop because it's that's probably not good. It's probably you know, yeah. How's it going with that? It, <laughs> it's a it's an ongoing thing. You know, I don't, I'm not sure that I actually understood, you know, what ego was until maybe five years ago. I don't think mm. a lot of people, a lot of especially a lot of men, don't even understand what that is. They, you know, when someone's being egotistical because they're just talking about themselves, but that whole defense and 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 thinking about, you know you yourself first and all that not that i was hmm. i didn't really consider myself selfish but i would defend myself yeah i've heard people talk about like i mean it's interesting to hear you say like you know as a man it's good for me to like stop defending myself as opposed to like on the opposite side of that if you're not a man maybe sometimes you ought to you know defend yourself and sure yeah it seems like it's good to like leave space for the defenseless to like defend themselves. Well, yeah, there's a, there's a difference between, I think, defending yourself or having to explain something like, oh no, you didn't understand what I meant, which is another, you know, maybe sneakier way of defending yourself. Um, mm. There's, but there's a, there's a difference between those two things and just standing up for yourself. Right. Saying, oh yeah. Yeah. By the way, I'm calling bullshit on that. And you should listen to me. And if you're not going to listen to me, then, well, then maybe the conversation's over because it should be a conversation. We're getting deep here, Cindy. I know. I tell you. What's it called? I like it. What's it called when you tell a joke and uh, the person you tell the joke to doesn't get it, so you have to tell it again and they still don't get it? And then you try <laughs> to tell it a third time? <sighs> I don't know what that's called. I bet the Germans have, a, have one big long word for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not Schadenfreuden or whatever that is, but it's something probably yeah. like that. Yeah. Uh, I heard you on this podcast called The Radical with Nick Turzo about um, keeping in touch with your intuition, mm -hmm. um, that you have to trust that and listen to that in life, which still it's an ongoing process for everyone. But what's been your experience with like trusting, listening to and going with your gut? Has it been like a natural thing for you to do? Uh, no, I'd say the first uh, four or five records I made even especially with X, they were a lot more brainy and, and I would listen, I would listen to my brain instead of my heart and, um, and then got kind of talked into things because of that. Things that I, I knew, I don't think that's right, but you make a good point. You make a good case for why we should do something different. So, okay, I'll go along with it. And then the record comes out and you go, fuck, that's still there. And I don't like it. I, I knew that I should have insisted on that because it's something that, so that's that little voice. And, and um, at some point, you know, in, in making solo records, I, I've started just feeling things. And, and that's, I think in, in a lot of artistic endeavors, you got to just be vulnerable and just feeling stuff and, and, and not cranking down on it and just kind of releasing it and, and listening to, what seems right and if it seems right then it probably is right and if it seems wrong then it, hmm. you probably should find a better way to, or a different way to do it what are your thoughts on like creating a piece of art being really vulnerable but then also like maybe something wasn't 
like totally perfect and you go back and you listen to it and then you just sort of like just because like the world that we live in you have to like continuously keep on creating art you know Mm -hmm. um like what what is your thought on on like that whole that whole process of just i don't even know what kind of question i'm asking you right now i i I think you're you're asking (laughs) when do you know uh when to stop and that's also intuition and i no, i don't stress over a um, a, a different way of that that a, a recording could have been. I, I can only imagine if I was a you know visual artist. I, I you stop when you, it feels like it's done, and um, it's just a record of what happened that week or or month, mm-hmm. however long it took you to to do it. It's a record of that. It's not a it's not the 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 old, and then it's not the ultimate version. Then you sing it or play it live and it's different again and sometimes it's different it's, yeah yeah i hear that a lot from musicians that like once they figure that out it's like takes a lot of stress out of the actual act of like creating and, and recording mm-hmm. i mean i i still experience the feeling that um once a record is done and then you play the songs another 15 or 20 times you think oh i could have i could have been a little looser with that i could have you know played with the melody a little bit more but you know Mm. i I don't necessarily like the phrase it is what it is but it applies and yeah it seems kind of lazy to say well it is what it is and it's like yeah does does it have to be (laughs) i don't know right (laughs) seems very resigned yes yeah that phrase um in terms of uh, physical and mental health, it seems like you've managed to take care of your health in a world that can like cultivate hard living in terms of like mm. substance abuse, toxic behavior. Mm. Um, can can you talk about how you've taken care of your health over the years and maybe like what regrets you might have <laughs> about things you did or didn't do over the years? Uh, uh, I regret that a lot of my friends are dead because <laughs> they, cause they mm. didn't take care of themselves. I don't know. It just didn't. It didn't click. I mean, I I did pretty much every kind of drug and and drank too much, and it it didn't. Um, that's something that I I certainly uh, cut back on during COVID, is drinking, because mm-hmm. you know? it it's sort of a social thing. But then you realize, you know what? Like maybe one drink or two is plenty. Because beyond that, then you're just kind of getting sloppy and also when you live a while uh you know i'm older so people say oh i remember this time that you said and then dot 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 and you're going like oh fuck what 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 did i say and it's like (laughs) how stupid was i how drunk was i how you know and then you just say you know then you want to kind of just stop that you can stop that repetition that that story um I feel bad for for people that that become addicted. I certainly have been, and um, I feel a lot of empathy for that. But it's I was just fortunate that nothing grabbed me and thought and made me think that that it was a better version of me while I was high. Hmm. I mean, I did at at times, but not overall. Hmm. And and I I got good. You know, I'm I'm very fortunate. To have, uh, you know, some Viking blood and, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm lucky in that way. Viking blood. Yeah. Well, I mean, some yeah. of my family is from <laughs> Scandinavia, my my heritage. And so, yeah, I don't know. Conquerors. Yeah. <laughs> my, I'm not. I swear I'm not. <laughs> uh, it's okay. My family, too. My family were the uh, Mayflower, so... Oh, a lot of nice. A lot of uh, sad times over here for. Yeah. Well, that that's that that brings up a point of, about the the song um, "Guilty Bystander" because that was inspired by uh, the murder of George Floyd, and I mm-hmm. I felt like I want to sing a song that relates to this somehow, but it's got to be in this certain time frame and so forth. So, I think it is important to to realize that you you don't have to be your family and that you can do better, hmm. you know, that, that, but at the same time, if you're an, uh, you know, a older or white male, you got to just shut up and take your lumps for a while. You've had a pretty hmm. easy up to this point and like white fragility, fragility is real. 
And so just shut up, take your lumps. It's okay. Just like be a little more inclusive, a little more, you know, giving. It's, it's that easy. I mean, I, I know that it, it's a lot easier said than done, but it's, it really is that easy. Just shut the fuck up. There's like a certain type of songwriting that that you participate in. Randy Newman also participates in where it's like that, you know, he was the big example that came to mind or, mm-hmm. you know, he's writing a song about short people, but it's not really about short people. And, yeah, you know, uh, this is all coming to mind because I read about how X stopped playing the song Los Angeles because of the racial slur in the lyrics. So mm-hmm. you wrote that song in 1978 and use that word. And when it was written, the song was like used to hold a mirror up to people. Mm-hmm. But now like you're playing the song again after Billy suggested to, you know, you change the N word to the word Christian. So mm-hmm. she had started hating every Christian and Jew. So can you talk about like making that change in your feelings about like nuance and art that might require context versus like people's short attention spans? Oh, uh, you know, I, I think you, you should be able to say or do anything pretty much in, in art because that, I mean, up until recently has been a safe space. But if you're, if you're uh, actively hurting or um, disrespecting people by, you know, a, a group of people by saying the N-word, it's, not, it's no big deal. It's not, it's not a big deal. It, it doesn't compromise my artistic integrity. And I don't want to be on the wrong side of, uh, of justice or the wrong side of, a, uh, of an issue. I care more about how people feel, if people are offended, than, than what my intention was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I watched uh, the X documentary, Scene in X, The Unheard Music, and it was a really good documentary. And you were talking about X scene had never been in a band before X and didn't know like traditional harmony. And she just sang along until like something sounded right. And like her harmonies are so fucking wild. Um, So you got like a different sound. So can you talk about what it's been like to have her as a singing partner and what she's taught you about singing and harmony? Uh, To expect the unexpected (laughs) (laughs) and, and to, to not be rigid about what it, ought to be and she also that's a good lesson yeah you know Exine is an incredible front person because she has a, 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 an, a, an unbridled amount of power within within her and she's taught me she taught me a lot about writing about how to you know she's a wonderful writer who loves wordplay and and so if I, I I learned a lot of that from her and um you know, one of my early influences was the band, and and they they would also put in, you know, harmonies in unexpected places. Mm-hmm. They would sing just a part of a verse and then let the other person take over, and you know, it was kind of like all over the place, and and that also helped me learn what you could do or don't have to do. Did you ever meet any of those guys from the band? No, unfortunately, they were mm. real. Real heroes of mine, but I never did meet them. Uh, what about uh, Levon's daughter, Amy? Are you into her stuff at all? Yeah, yeah. Actually, I've, I met her um, once. She she's uh, represented by my manager as well. And, oh, cool. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I think we were. I think we're going to play at that uh, barn. This uh, at the barn. Yeah, in June, I think. Great. Yeah, she's great. We might even play in Pittsburgh. I'm, I know we're getting over to the Midwest from the East Coast, so we, I think we're trying to play in Pittsburgh, too. All right. Yeah. Great. I'll see you there. <laughs> Hope so. <laughs> um, you and the members of X, do you don't really have to say it, but you've gone through a lot together over the years, especially you and Xene. Mm-hmm. Um, but it seems like you know you were married for a while, and it seems like you both decided to choose the band and people in the band had differing views and perspectives that you personally disagree with. But can you talk about continuously choosing X, choosing the band over whatever differences come up and how that practice has impacted your ability to connect with others that you disagree with? Well, 
when I lived in the mountains out about 75 miles out uh, outside of Los Angeles, there was, um, you know, anytime you get out of a major city, it becomes a little more provincial. There's a lot more conservative ideas and thoughts and, and points of view. So that taught me something. I think one of the reasons we all choose X is because it's what we do, A, it's like what we do. It's, you know, I'm, I'm not a carpenter, I'm a musician in this band. And, and I value it and I honor it. And um, I don't know if Billy and DJ would say the same thing or Xene, but I think they would It'd be similar. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's like a family and everybody knows families are really complicated and you kind of have to, you don't have to get along, but it's better if you do. And, and it teaches you respect, you know. You may disagree with somebody, but it doesn't mean that they're an idiot or an asshole. Because as soon as you say that, then the conversation's over. If you try to, you know, respect each other and say, hey, what about this? And sometimes, sometimes you don't. And then you might regret it. And, but then you have to patch it up. And I think also as you get older, you don't sweat the little stuff. Hmm. I wanted to ask you about acting, but I don't have a question. I just found this mind-blowing fact that I discovered that you were on the Bodyguard soundtrack in 1992. <laughs> yes, I that's was. not an acting question. That's a music question. It's not a question. But yes. is this the truth? So in the movie, uh, your version of I Will Always Love You plays on the jukebox when Kevin Costner and Whitney Houston are dancing. Yes. And it's like one of the greatest selling soundtracks of all time. Yes. But your song was not on the CD. That's true. It was on the cassette. Oh, was it? That's what I, I read. Oh. It was on the cassette, but it wasn't on the CD. Well, yes. It didn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> and, and if I had been on the um, LP or on the soundtrack, we wouldn't be having this conversation now because I'd own an island somewhere and wouldn't give a yeah. shit. <laughs> <laughs> you know? although, although Nick Lowe did get a gold record for that. That's right. Several, he did. probably, probably a platinum, several platinum records, and and uh, I was friends with Kevin and uh, and Jim Wilson, who was the producer of that, and they asked me if I would do it, and I said, of course. And then they tried to to get country radio stations to play that version, and they said, well, yeah, this is good, but we're still playing Dolly's version, and I thought, okay, never mind. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I don't. I I can't hold a candle, even a little tiny baby candle to that to miss dolly parton man yeah it's a good version i enjoyed it it's not bad i haven't heard it in forever but i i seem to remember it was all right i was listening to npr yesterday and they were talking about this new podcast on audible that i wonder if you've heard of called punk in translation it's a deep dive into the history of influential latinx punk icons Mm, that's cool i haven't heard it yeah. Uh, I haven't either because it's on Audible. But uh, anyways, it's, uh, it particularly focuses on uh, women, Latinas, and punk. What's it called? It's called Punk in what? Punk in Translation. Yes. Um, I thought, uh, and it was like super interesting, you know, going through so much history, uh, I thought you'd be interested in it because... Uh, of the punk music aspect, but I also felt like you were like always a really very respectful person in terms of the way you work with, talk to, and treat women in general. Mm-hmm. Um, so would you call yourself a feminist or how would you relate to that movement and like male privilege? Oh, I, I, I don't know if it's appropriate for a man to call himself a feminist, but I am a, an ally to feminism. Absolutely. It was exciting to see the Latino youngsters come to punk rock in in 1979 or whatever it was. That was exciting. I mean, and you know, there were there were a few several Latino people in the first version or the first uh wave of punk rock in LA, you know, Alice Bag and and Tito Lariva, Chalo Quintana. So yeah, I I I'm, I'm going to listen to that. I don't listen to podcasts very much, but I might. Uh, 
Uh, you have written two books, Under the Big Black Sun and More Fun in the New World. I read, <laughs> you, you said that you Tom Sawyered these books by getting mm-hmm. a lot of contributions from others right? Uh, who wrote their own chapters and did interviews with you. So do you feel like it, it covers 10 years, 1977 and 1987? Do you feel like you got the whole story of those 10 years out there? And what do you think is left to explore or left to say? Oh, I, we didn't really cover the mod um, rock steady scene that was in L.A. with the Untouchables and um, there were a few other groups. They all had scooters and dressed accordingly <laughs> and stuff. That was cool. But I, I wasn't really part of that. And and we mm-hmm. also didn't we, we did a little bit in the second book about the uh, Paisley Underground, the the, you know, green on red and the um, so that we didn't cover that. And enough, or we, I think there's another book to be written about that. And, you know, we didn't, that was one of the reasons that I ask other people to contribute, especially for the first book, because I couldn't tell the story of what it was like to be a woman in punk rock. I couldn't tell mm-hmm. the story of what it was like to be Latino in punk rock um, between 77 and 82. So, yeah, we told the story that, that we were aware of, the story that we had to tell. I was kind of hoping that either Pleasant Gaiman or Jane Wheedlin would write their own book. And they may. I don't know. They enjoyed it and they and they were, you know, good writers. Pleasant is a terrific writer. So it, it at least I think added to to what has been written about LA before, uh, with a with a number of perspectives and, and it, it it felt a little, you know, like I felt a little more vindicated that like LA was not just the also ran. <laughs> Oh, right. For, for a long time, for a long time, they yeah. it, it was like that, and I think people had already heard all the stories of, that had, of, of what New York and London were like, and even Manchester mm-hmm. in in that scene, and so they were drawn to this. And there's a lot of great photography and good images, and people yeah. are, people are young and pretty and cool and stuff stuff like that. Uh, I feel that way sometimes about. So I'm from Boston, and I feel that way about like the folk story in Boston kind of gets also rand. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Someone someone should should do that. I think uh this writer Scott Alaric who just recently passed away. I think he wrote a pretty good book about it in the early 2000s. Hmm. Uh anyways, a couple more questions. Um you moved to Austin, Texas and you say it's terrible there. <laughs> <laughs> you don't like it. No, it's awful. Uh how are you trying to be a good Texan, and how do you think you're a bad Texan? <laughs> uh, according to which definition of your own? Yeah. Or the most Texas person you know? Oh well, see that's all over the map too. <laughs> um, I'm trying to be a good Texan by by being um, uh, involved uh, politically to to uh, you know as as much as I'm capable. Um, I'm being a good Texan by not using up all the resources. Um, I'm not encouraging other people who have horrible podcasts to move here and avoid paying taxes in California. You know who I'm talking about. Um, I do. (laughs) You know, Austin is a great place and it's still just like Hollywood or L.A. You can still find the, the, the cool spots, but it's it's a little bit harder now. Mm. And um yeah. You know, selfishly, I could I could buy a house here and I couldn't do that where we were living up in the Bay Area unless I wanted to move to, you know, like Modesto or, or some really far flung place. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I still love California, but, you know, I could I could buy a place here. And that that's especially the last two years has been a great source of security, which, yeah, again, you know, you, you see people on the street and, and you think, it's even harder if you're if you don't mm-hmm. have a, a place or yeah. or you're you know or you're uh left to the whims of of your landlord landlady mm-hmm. i'm getting old i'm gonna sell the place and it's like fuck i can't even afford to pay rent if i have to move you know so i'm very uh, it's that's 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 nice but it is uh, a, it, but it but it is a challenge when you know when they have these really awful awful laws you know like the abortion laws and and the you know this you know, I'm trying to to 
drum up support for for people that uh, have better things to scare that, that are not trying to scare people into mm-hmm. voting for voting for laws that don't really matter because there are actually only three or four transgender people that are playing sports mm-hmm. but they make this whole fucking thing about something's terrible is going to happen if a transgender kid plays sports on the with the sex that they identify with it's like don't you have better things to do is it just mm. is, is it that small town mentality that you you don't have anything better to do so you're going to get people all whipped up and but I, you know unfortunately i think that and and i'm really getting on a soapbox here i don't even think the politicians like ted cruz and and Abbott, and I don't even think they believe in, in what they preach. I think they do it to stay in power. I think it's more like World Wrestling Federation, you know, just to <laughs> say some crazy shit and then get people all whipped up about it. Yeah. And and thereby stay in power and get endorsements and get more, you know, influence and therefore more money and more everything and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I, I almost would, <laughs> would respect them more if they actually believed in it. I don't think they do. Honestly, I feel like your uh, our viewpoints are like pretty perfectly aligned. Oh, well, uh, no. <laughs> so okay. <laughs> thumbs up, John. Yay! Um, yay! Uh, your partner, and you call her your partner and your spiritual advisor. Yes, Chrissy Teigerstrom. She mm-hmm. is an artist, and uh, you wear some of her designs mm-hmm. that, with the arrows. Yep. Uh, can you talk about the significance of the arrows and also what it means to be able to wear her work? Um, well, it, I, I wear it cause it's cool and it looks good. Um, also I'm n- not objective at all. And, and, uh, but the arrows represent, um, energy, you know, coming and going, mm-hmm. either putting it out or taking it in. Mm-hmm. And, um, we were lucky enough to design a boot for a friend of ours, uh, boot company, in, in Austin called Heritage Boots. And uh, that was fun. There's actual, like, several people have bought, I mean, like, maybe a hundred and some, 120-some people have bought boots that we designed. It's like That's awesome. Yeah, it was awesome. Um, That's yes. nice. She let you, uh, she let you design. <laughs> she did the designing. <laughs> we just kind of, I said, well, what if they had a little bit less of this or a little more of that? I was the I was the advisor of the designing advisor. Nice. Yeah. Well, she seems cool. It, is she still doing her podcast or is it on hiatus? Uh, yeah, she stopped doing it during COVID and uh, just recently had a an ex, an exhibition. She was part of a group show up in Fort Worth, and it's really cool. Um, she may she may redo it, but part of uh, one of the reasons she wanted to do it is to actually get face to face with people. She would always do them. In, do them in oh, person yeah. but it was a good podcast you know all about creativity and where it comes mm-hmm. from and what you do with it well um before i let you go will you do a quick lightning round with me yes yes all right here we go what is the first song you learned on the guitar oh um next <laughs> what is your karaoke song <laughs> i don't do karaoke this is going well um what is your coffee order uh, Americano, um, short with uh, two shots. First celebrity crush. Oh, Captain Kangaroo. No, the dancing, the dancing bear. Uh, no, Lead Belly. <laughs> Who's the nicest musician you've ever met? DJ Bonebreak. Oh, good one. Uh, first album you bought with your own money. Uh, the first record I bought with my own money was For Your Love by the Yardbirds. I rode home on my bike and fell off and cracked it on the way home. But you no. could put it but you could put it back together like cuz it's a 45 you could just like go and it would go back together and it played but there was a little like click. It's okay. Best answer. That's the best answer I've ever gotten for that one. What was the last book you read? The last book I read uh, was called Desert Reckoning by Deanne Stillman and it's about a hermit in Antelope Valley, California, who murders a sheriff and a five, six-day manhunt uh, ensued in 2003. True story? True story, yeah. It's crazy. Beatles or the Rolling Stones? Uh, Rolling Stones. Mm. 
the bad mm. kids like the Rolling Stones <laughs> and the good kids like the Beatles. That tracks. Um, yes, but the, but actually the actually the Beatles were more the bad kids and pretended to be good kids, and the Rolling Stones were more art kids that pretended to be bad kids. Uh, the truth I, comes right. out. Yeah. Okay, this is the last question. Could I choose the animals Where's... instead? <laughs> I choose Eric Burton. Oh, I like was like, what animals? So, oh, the band, the, the animals. Band, yes. The okay. Animals. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, okay. Acceptable. Uh, Steve Winwood or Eric Clapton? Oh, Steve Winwood. Yeah, that was that was a trick question because the answer <laughs> is Steve Winwood. Okay, this is this is the last one, the real last one. Okay. Where where is the most beautiful place you've ever visited? Oh, um, my own backyard. Um, <laughs> the most beautiful place I've ever visited would probably be probably be Yosemite Valley. Hmm. I don't know if you have you ever been there. No, but I got I got that answer the other day actually Yosemite. Yeah, because you well the thing is you drive for probably forty five minutes plus, and then you go through a tunnel and then there's the Yosemite Valley, that Tuolumne mm. Meadows and you know El Capitan oh, wow. and Bridal Falls and all that kind of stuff. So it just you know it's really beautiful and you're climbing and you're going through these woods and all this sort of stuff and, and then you go through a tunnel and then bam there it is. So it wow. kind of blows your mind. That sounds beautiful. It is. It also sounds like Pittsburgh when you drive from the airport that is, to the city. That is very true. <laughs> it's, it's somewhat different, but it's true. It's like, yeah. bam, there it is. Um, I think the first song I played on guitar was um, House of the Rising Sun. Mm-hmm. Right? The, okay. the version that the animals did. Okay, I read you did that in your first concert in grade five. Yes, fifth grade. Yeah. Okay. Well, you you do a ton of research, Cindy. Good job. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you, and good job to you. Uh, thank you so much for talking to me today, and for always being so cool. I remember the last time I was telling somebody the last time I interacted with John, I was listening to Phoebe Bridger's album, and I heard his voice. And I texted him, is that you on the Phoebe Bridgers album? And you sent me an emoji thumbs up. Yeah. Yeah, it was. Now she's big time. I know. Really big time. Pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah, she deserves it. She's a good singer and a good songwriter. Mm-hmm. Agree. Well, thanks, John. Yeah, it's a pleasure. And I hope to see, uh, if not in Pittsburgh, some other place. This episode of Basic Folk was produced by John Nungesser. Alex Stanton composes our music. Basic Folk is on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. You can check us out wherever you get podcasts. On the SiriusXM app, you can search for Basic Folk or on our website, basicfolk.com. Thank you so much for listening to the entire episode. How great are you? We'll talk to you next time. Okay, Mm, bye.